one of the most dramatic moments in history, certainly in, in the Bible history, but maybe all of human history, took place in an environment that we have come to call the upper room. It took place towards the end of Jesus' ministry. And some of you, you already know this story. I think most of you know at least bits and pieces of this story. So essentially, his disciples were coming to Jerusalem and they were going to celebrate Passover together. Woohoo! So Passover was this meal. It was kind of a festival, but it's a remembrance meal slash ceremony where the Jewish people would get together, have a meal, and they would pause to remember what had happened hundreds of years earlier when the Israelites were in Egyptian slavery. So they had their last meal in Egypt, and the next morning they were all going to get up and they were just going to walk out of Egypt. They had been in Egypt for 400 years as a group of people. It started as just a family, but that family had grown to be a nation. And all they had known in their entire history as a nation is that they were slaves. Since the beginning, all that they had known was slavery, and they had prayed, and they had prayed, and they had prayed to their God for 400 years, and their prayers went unanswered. And well, four days, and we're like, is there even a God? So 400 years, their prayers had gone unanswered, and God finally sent them a deliverer, Moses. And Moses said, tomorrow, we're leaving. And tonight, well, tonight is going to be a bit rough, honestly. Tonight, the angel of death, as it was referred to, the angel of death is going to enter the land of Egypt and kill every single firstborn of every single family that does not have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, over the doorpost, and on the door. So uh, I hope you're all writing this down, right? Because yes, there is going to be a test, and yes, it is kind of a big one. <coughs> the Israelites taking Moses at his word, slaughtered a lamb, had a meal, put the blood on their doorpost. That night, the angel of death passed over the land of Egypt, and the next morning, the Pharaoh said, you, you may go now. Go. So that was the last meal. That was the last supper. That was the last time that the Israelite families gathered in Egypt. The next day, they packed up their stuff, everything they owned, plus everything that the Egyptians had given them. The author of Exodus tells us that the Egyptians loaded them up with wealth just to get them to leave. And they left Egypt and turned to go towards what has been called the promised land. Now, 1,400 years later, after that event, Jesus is going to gather with his disciples to have the Passover meal, to celebrate Passover. And they had done this before, but this time, this time was different. Uh, they had gathered before, and they'd gathered for the Passover meal, and, and, and things had been great because Jesus was a star, right? He's a cultural icon. Thousands of people gathered to hear him speak, and the disciples were feeling like we're on the left, and we're on the right of this hand side of this guy, and, and things are going to go great because there's a lot of momentum, and the crowds are getting bigger and bigger, and the miracles are getting bigger and bigger, and, and, and everything was going. But as they were about to gather for this, what we call the Last Supper, because it was the last time that Jesus would share Passover with them on this earth, things weren't going well. The momentum had turned around. There were rumors that a group of people were trying to arrest Jesus, trying to isolate him from the crowd, get him alone and arrest him and accuse him of all kinds of things. 
the disciples knew that if Jesus went down, they would be going down with him. Then he began talking about his death. And that, that was disconcerting. Then, then he was talking about being taken away, and they sort of just filtered all of that out. Because in their way of thinking, much like our way of thinking, if God is with you, and if God is working with you, and if God is moving around you, then things get better, right? Because wherever God shows up, things get better, right? Because wherever God shows up, there is more certainty, not less certainty. But they found themselves at a time where things just weren't going well. And generally, Jesus would tell them, okay, uh, we're going to go celebrate Passover in this city, so you guys just go off and get it all ready. And now here they are in the afternoon of Passover, and Jesus still hadn't even told them where they were going to celebrate Passover, and this is a big deal. They were going to Jerusalem, and um, he said, okay, when I get to Jerusalem, things are going to go really, really bad. And of course, they're like us. They're going, so why are we going there then? It's like he was had a death wish. It was like he was going to walk right into the jaws of death. Things are going to be bad when we get to Jerusalem. Follow me. So they get to the outskirts of Jerusalem and, and they stop and they wait for the sun to set. And Jesus sends two of them in to go and meet this mysterious man who takes them to a mysterious place. And somehow Jesus had prearranged Passover but he never told any of his disciples about it because it was at this time that he wasn't even sure that he could trust them. As it turns out, he couldn't. He didn't want anyone to know where they would be because they would be isolated, away from the crowds, and that would make them vulnerable. So they sneak into Jerusalem under the, under the cover of night, not a big celebration, not people shouting, not any of the other things that had happened before. And they sneak into Jerusalem under the cover of night and they go to this home and they, and they climb the stairs. They go up to the upper room and that's where they gather and it was all just strange. There was no certainty. If that wasn't bad enough, Jesus begins the conversation this way. Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, starting at verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. So literally, one of you is going to hand me over. And nobody in the room raised their hand and said, um, hand you over to whom? They already knew the answer to that question. The momentum had shifted. Things were not going well. One, he says, who was eating with me. So this kind of punctuates the insult, okay? To eat with someone in that culture is much like eating with someone in our culture. It would be like having someone in your home and saying, oh, by the way, I know that you are going to betray me. They are in the most intimate setting possible in that culture, much like our culture again. And he says, not only is one of you going to betray me, not only is it one of you who has chosen to gather around this sacred table to celebrate this amazing thing that God has done, and one of you who is eating with me is going to betray me, but then also will betray really all of us right after this significant spiritual experience. Verse 19, they were saddened and disappointed, and, and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. 
20. It's one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. 21, the son of man will go. And that is to say that things are, they're going to go just like God predicted them, okay? The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So this ancient collection of historical manuscripts, the Bible, is full of stories, full of narratives written and taking place in the midst of extraordinary uncertainty. And I would say this, as we, uh, as families and as people, as a nation, as a culture, face uncertainty now like we've never faced it before, Scripture is the perfect place to run to because your favorite Bible story, the, the one that you were raised with maybe, that you love to hear repeated again and again, your favorite passage of scripture, your favorite psalm, perhaps even your favorite proverb. If you have a favorite like that, it was written in and reflected a time of extraordinary uncertainty. That, this is not a collection of stories about rich people having fun, okay? It's not, it's not about how things went great, uh, and then Monday, they went even better. And then Tuesday, got a new job. Wednesday, got a raise. Thursday, got a bonus. And all my kids became professional athletes, and they all went to medical school on full scholarships. These kinds of wrinkle-free life things, they all live happily ever after, even after the, the other troubles. And there was no divorce in the land ever. It's not in there. That's not the way the stories went. Every single narrative, every single passage, every single thing that we draw hope or security from, all of those come from troubled, troubled times. From the lives of real people who discovered that in the midst of uncertainty, God was still certain. In the midst of uncertainty, when you couldn't even trace God's hand, when it seemed like he was absent to the 10th power, they discovered that God was still trustworthy. If ever there was a time for us to pick up the Bible, this Bible thing, and read it, this is the time. This is where we find the story that many of us are familiar with about a teenager named Joseph. Not Mary and Joseph, but a teenager named Joseph in the Old Testament. And I know you've had some problems with your older brothers or sisters. If you've got them, you've had problems with them. I know, I know that you've had some misunderstandings. But have you ever found yourself at the bottom of a well that your brothers and sisters put you in? Well, Joseph found himself at the bottom of a well that his brothers and sisters, or just his brothers, put him in. And he hears his brothers up above having this conversation. Should we sell him or should we kill him? I don't know, let's sell him. No, 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 let's kill him. Okay, listen, I realize that you've had some sibling rivalry, but there are some issues, you know, gone on. Maybe it was over in an inheritance, uh, or, or maybe it was like, she stole my sweatshirt, she wore it, she didn't wash it, she threw it on the floor, and nah, 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 nah. I realize it's not fair, okay? I realize that it isn't fair. Joseph, though, is at the bottom of a well. Do we sell him, or do we kill him? When you read the story and you discover, believe it or not, that God was actually with Joseph. And then you read the story about King David, who would eventually, um, the, the Messiah would come from his lineage. And he's awakened one day to a nasty alarm. And I know that you've had problems with your kids. But he's awakened one day to, to, to discover that his son has raised an army and is about to invade the capital city to replace him as king, to conquer him as king. And again, we've, we've had problems with our kids. But an army? To destroy his father? 
And, and you read that story and you discover that God was in the middle of that with David. Then there's a story that, uh, again, most of us have probably heard of growing up about a mother. She had a baby boy, a baby son. And like any mother who loved her son and was told that Pharaoh had decided to murder all of the baby boys because they were just too many Israelites in the land. And I realize there's a lot of emotion about babies and there's a lot of emotion about children and so many prayers are prayed for sick children. But here's a mother who wraps up her newborn son, puts him in a basket, and shoves him out into the Nile River. It's as if to say, if it's between the crocodiles in the river and the Egyptian butchers, I'll take my chances with the river. And you read the story, and you discover God was there, and the little baby was found, and they named him Moses. And he became the deliverer of the nation. But before she knew the end of the story, where was God in that? I couldn't see God in that. And then the reflection or the foreshadowing of another baby that would be rescued from a similar fate. And as Mary and Joseph discover that Herod, in his jealousy for his kingdom, working under the guise of a rumor that had been spread that there was a baby being born that would grow up to be the Jewish king. He decided, he thought it would be better, instead of trying to find the baby, to just wipe out an entire generation of little Jewish boys. So he sent his butchers into Bethlehem and the surrounding area and murdered every single baby. But she escapes to, of all places, back to Egypt to save the baby Jesus. There was weeping and wailing in the land, and you read the story and you discover that God was right there in the middle of all that. God somehow still had the whole world in his hands. Every single story, read them for yourself. Every single story where it seems like things have spun absolutely out of control and all of this momentum is backwards momentum now and all of God's activity has ceased and the bad guys won and the evil king won and the gods of the pagan empires had won. You read those stories and you discover that in the midst of that extraordinary uncertainty, there's God. And nothing has changed. He still has the whole world in his hands. Mark 14, 22. And while they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And I'm telling you, this sucked the breath right out of these guys. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, oh yeah, by the way, this isn't what you think it is. I mean, you've been eating the Passover since you were, you were children, but from now on, from now on, when you eat it, Jesus said, this is my body that has been broken for you. What do you mean this is your body? Oh, I know. This is all that death talk again, isn't it? This is all that negativity, right? We're all just trying to have a nice meal here, Jesus. Why do you have to go and spoil it like that? Can't we just enjoy one meal without all that negativity? I don't want to hear it. Here we go. If you are from God, then things have to turn around. If you are from God, there needs to be more certainty, not less certainty. That's the way it works. Verse 23, then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And then he said, 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he foreshadows right there what is going to take place hours later. 
when he's going to get nailed to the cross and die right in front of their eyes. Then they leave that room and they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane where there's so much drama. And Jesus is eventually arrested and along the way, if you can believe this, the news got worse. In verse 27, he says this, by the way, not only will one of you betray me, you will all fall away. And Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Verse 28, but after I have risen, and they never even heard this part, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So Peter is following along and he's thinking, all right, enough of this. Someone's got to step in. Enough of this, enough negative, enough bad news, enough about death, enough about arrest, enough about this betrayal. There is no way that we are going to just sit here and allow any of this to happen. Because if God is with you, and if you are the Son of God, well, this just isn't how the story goes. We know how the story goes. There's got to be more certainty. There's more faith. There is more of the miraculous. There is more activity. There's more hope. There is more intervention. And then in verse 29, Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Because that's not how the story is supposed to go. Even if everyone abandons you, I'm not going to fall away. I'll stick with you right to the end. Later, that very same man, with all of this faith, would listen to a young girl accuse him of being one of Jesus' followers, and he would now deny Jesus three times. Now, here's my question for you, question for me. As we move into this new series and we continue to experience extraordinary uncertainty in our families, in our jobs, with our children, with our culture, with our leadership, with our health, with our economy, with our federal, provincial government leaders, with our retirement, our retirement savings, with our way of shopping, with our way of interacting, with our ability to go to school or to stay in school or to continue school. With all of that uncertainty, here's the question. Can you trust God? Can you maintain faith in God when there's absolutely no evidence of his activity in your life? Can you continue to embrace faith in God as a personal heavenly father when there is absolutely no evidence of his activity in your life, in your culture, in your country, seemingly at times in our world? Your answer to that question will determine your response to the continual and continuing uncertainty in our world. Your answer to that question, my answer to that question, will determine our response to the uncertainty in our lives, in our lives with our children, with our families, with our parents. The strange thing is that here is the dilemma. And for the next couple of weeks, I just, I just want to keep pointing to this because it's so extraordinarily important, especially for North Americans, that equate God with prosperity. Why shouldn't we? I mean, we've been so incredibly prosperous, right? We equate God with forward motion. Why shouldn't we? Most of us have experienced primarily forward motion that equate God and God's blessing with physical, tangible blessing. Why shouldn't we? 
That's been the experience for many of us for generations. But I imagine if you were to talk to the disciples and you were to ask them this question, guys, what was the darkest moment as you followed Jesus? When did you have the least amount of hope? When did you begin to wonder, did we make a mistake in following him? Maybe he's just another false messiah. Maybe we've wasted our lives. When were the darkest moments? I believe they would have said, it began when we gathered around that dinner table. We realized that things aren't going to get better. It's when we gathered around the table that night that he promised us that things would get worse. And that not only would one of us betray him, but all of us would fall away. And then within a few hours, all of us had fallen away. The one man that said he would never fall away had denied him three times. Then hours later, we saw Jesus arrested. We saw him tried. We saw him die. You want to know when the darkest hours were for us? It was those hours that we realized that we have completely wasted our time. And God isn't up to anything here. And then if we could ask, where in your time with Jesus do you think God was doing his greatest work? Was it healing the lame guy? What about when he healed all those blind guys? That was pretty awesome. Or, or maybe it was when you were standing outside the tomb when Lazarus came forth. He'd been in that tomb literally for stinking days, and he came out of the tomb. Was that when God was doing the most? They would have said those same hours when it seemed to us that he was doing the very least. Those very same hours when it seemed like he was absent, when he was missing those darkest, darkest hours. God was doing his greatest work. And in those darkest hours when it seemed he was completely inactive, he was most active. Because those dark hours were the epicenter of the salvation of all humanity that God, that God was, that, that there would be in those hours. For literally thousands of years, people would look back from all over the world, they would look back and they would rejoice in God's goodness and God's grace. But if you'd asked them in the moment, we would have said game over. Wasted time. Not a man of God. We've just wasted our lives. That is a difficult message for us. It's a difficult message for North American Christians, and yet it's our story. For those of us who have chosen to follow God, and specifically for those of us who have decided to put our place, to place our trust, our weight on Jesus. It's not only your story because we're reflected in the story of the gospel, it's our story because for many of us, that's our experience. That God seems to take broken things and do his most amazing work. God seems to wait to the last minute to do his amazing work. That God seems to take up broken and hopeless situations and show up in a way, not the way that we would choose, because we would never allow things to get as bad as they oftentimes get. But this is God's way. The greatest things begin in the biggest messes. The most amazing works of God generally are launched at a time of personal or national or international brokenness. This is what God does. 
But the question for you, the question for me is, will we maintain faith when we cannot see his hand? What is he up to? As our faith begins to stutter and as our faith begins to shake a little bit and as our faith begins to waver and we begin to look to the left and to the right and, and we look at circumstances and we begin to doubt, now more than ever, God's word is the place to go because all of these stories and all of these words and the story of our salvation was birthed at a time of extraordinary darkness, extraordinary uncertainty. And that's neat. Maybe, hopefully, it's even a little bit inspirational. But that's not going to help me get a job. And that's not going to help my kids get back to school. That's not going to change anything tomorrow when my wife goes back to work and she finds out whether or not she's able to keep her job. And that won't get me a commission. And that won't change anything about my prodigal son or my prodigal daughter. And that doesn't make me well. And that doesn't guarantee that I won't get the virus. And you're right. But here's what I know. Because this is our message. Although that idea, that insight, that truth about Scripture doesn't change anything in our circumstances, here's what it does. It allows you to embrace the uncertainty with the certainty of knowing that God is still in control. That although, although life is uncertain, God is not uncertain. And although, although life is, certain, is uncertain and family is uncertain and the economy is uncertain and the world seems to be uncertain, our health is uncertain, God is not uncertain. He still has the whole world in his hands. And this knowledge and embracing it, even if it's just with our fingernails barely holding on, it keeps us from making decisions that further complicate the difficulties that we are facing. It allows you to go to bed at night, and, and as we will talk about soon, to, to discover that there is a way to have peace even in the midst of this storm. It will teach us to keep an eye out for the activity of God that may take us by surprise as it often took the characters of Scripture by surprise. So, hang on to it. And embrace that simple truth that even though life is uncertain, God is not uncertain, and He still has the whole world in His hands. He still has your whole world in His hands. Now, that's easy for me to say, because I don't have to walk out the door and go back to your circumstances. I don't have to get up tomorrow morning like I know some in our congregation are doing and wonder, what am I going to do today? I don't have to go home and figure out how I'm going to finish school. Or I realize that our circumstances are all very different. What gives me the nerve to try and encourage you and to paint my eyes up, picture of pie in the sky by and by, and we'll give you some kind of this pep talk so that you'll go out and maintain faith, I mean, isn't this just what preachers are supposed to say? I understand all of that. And especially if you were new to faith, or you've been burned by the church before, or you've had a, a bad, a negative experience, or you've watched a family member, a parent, go through a difficult time, and the, the church just kept out pumping out all this sweet, nice message, and your parents, uh, they, they saw it, but it, it never took hold, and you never saw it make a difference. I understand that. 
But I recently came across a story about a guy, and it really encouraged me. The Reverend Otis Moss. Reverend Moss was born in 1935. And he's an African-American born in middle Georgia in 1935. When he was 16 years old, he was orphaned. And I don't know the circumstances behind all of that, but he lost both parents. So he was a 16-year-old orphaned American, African-American male in mid-Georgia in 1951. He saw the United States um, offer the worst that it had ever. And he was 19 years old. And when he was still a teenager, he put his faith in Christ. So it was actually earlier than that, but at 19 years old, he decided he wanted to go into the ministry and be a preacher. And through the years, he was able to connect with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He marched with him in Selma. He marched with him in Washington, D.C. And he became a part of that core group of men and women that experienced things that hopefully nobody in any country will ever have to experience again. He experienced the loss of a friend, he experienced the division of family. He experienced racism and hatred that for most of us, we can't even begin to imagine. Yet through all of that time, he maintained his faith. And as he was recounting his life to an interested young preacher in the middle of a sentence, he just stopped. And this sounds kind of like a preacher story, but, but this is how it happened. He just stopped talking to that young man. He, he turned and he just kind of stared off into space. And here's what he said after telling the stories, reliving some of those harrowing, heartbreaking times. Mid-sentence, dead stop, pause, head turn. And we know, just out of the blue, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And then he just stopped again. He quoted the first half of Romans 8, 28, and we know, and he was telling a story, and, and, and we know, and that, that in all things he has seen, and he has seen some all things, and the all things that fall into his all things are nothing like the things that have fallen into my all things. The all things that he's experienced are much different than the all things that many of us have experienced or will ever experience. And we know that in all things, God works to the benefit of those who love him. He just got quiet again. The weight of what he was saying hit him again. Another poignant pause. This moment, this conversation is all happening at the inauguration of President Obama. In the middle of his pause, the Secret Service stand up and they turn and, and, and there was movement around the corner and, and around that corner comes the first African-American president of the United States of America and, and Reverend Moss turns around. And how can anyone even begin to understand or appreciate the gravity of the significance of this moment? And as he went forward and he shook the president's hand, so many years of waiting, so many years of not ever really daring to even believe the possibility. This is a mid-conversation with a man who understands that in a way that, that, that I hope none of us will ever understand, but in a way that, that most of us need to understand that when life is uncertain, God is not, and he still has the whole world in his hand. And he still has your world and your family in his hands. And he still has your personal finances and, and all the things that are worrying us to death. 
mid-conversation with a man who maintained faith through things I can't even imagine. And here he is now in his mid-70s who is able to say with absolute confidence that our God is working. He is active. He is present. He is evident in all things. Fill in the blank in any way that makes sense for you. For those who love him, and he didn't even finish the verse, and who are called according to his purposes. I don't know what the future holds for us as a nation or as a world or families or as a city. I don't know that any more than anybody else does. But here's what I do know. Although life is uncertain and will continue to be, God is not. And he still has the whole world in his hand. And regardless of what we see or we don't see, we have the opportunity to embrace a faithful God even through circumstances where it is difficult or or maybe impossible to see his hand or to catch a glimpse of his face because God is still in control. God is still on his throne. God is still a God that we can worship with abandon and God is a God that we can continue to trust. Even though our lives are uncertain, he is not. He still has our whole world in his hand. Heavenly Father, for some of us today, this is our lifeline. This is our only lifeline. Father, for others of us, it's, it, it's going to be next week that we're going to need this, or it's going to be next month we're going to need this. It's, it, it's going to be the middle of the winter that we are going to need this because only you know the future. Father, I pray that in the uncertainty to come, that we would be the people that would cling to and hold on to, not our ability to interpret circumstance, not our propensity to, t- to judge you based on what you do and don't do. But we would be the men and women that declare you faithful, God. So faithful, God, in spite of what we see and experience, Father, we confess to de- together today that we believe that you work in all things, that you work through all things, that you show your hands strong in all things that you are in control of all things. You are the God of certainty, even when life is uncertain and you still have the whole world in your hands. Father, as we re-engage in our mission today, give us the wisdom to know how to express that, how to talk about that with our families, how how to talk about that at work, how to live that out. I pray, Father, that we would discover how to find peace in times that have no peace. Father, I pray that our parents who are leading their children and leading their families through uncertain times, give them wisdom to know how to lead. And for our single moms and our single dads who have the extra difficulty and the burden of being the only provider, the only one in the home with the kids, give them wisdom to know how to lead their kids to embrace a God when times are so uncertain. Father, as a church, lead us and guide us to know what to do with what is happening around us. But I pray that we would go to bed every single night with the confidence that you've not changed, that you're still God and you can be trusted and you are a God who works through broken things and difficult times to do your greatest work, be at work in our lives. God, we pray and I pray all of that in the amazing name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week for episode two.